Welcome to RCSD Thinking Classroom PD with your host, Dean and Kyle. I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast originated on Treaty 4 territory, traditional unceded lands of the Nahiawak, Nakaway, and Nakoda, homeland of the Métis, Lakota, and Dakota. All right, we're very excited to do this podcast this after, this afternoon tonight. I guess it's five thirty here in Saskatchewan. Um, today, with uh, Dean and myself, uh, we have Dr. Peter Lillydahl from Simon Fraser University out to the west of us, um, and we're here to talk about thinking classrooms. Um, and we went straight to the source, as Peter recently published, uh, "Building Thinking Classrooms in K to Twelve Mathematics," um, you know, which has become a best-selling math education book, one that has uh, got a lot of traction in our school division. So we're excited to uh, have Peter join us today um, and talk a little bit more about Thinking Classrooms. Thanks for having me. We're super excited. So we'll just start off right at the bat with, uh, what was the inspiration for the Thinking Classroom? Um, So I do talk, if you've read the book, I talked about this in the introduction. It was really, you know, it, it, it started out through this sort of happenstance situation whereby I ended up spending a lot of time in a lot of classrooms watching teachers. Well, not actually not watching teachers teach so much, but watching students learn. And um, having that opportunity to sit in classrooms without having to be responsible for the teaching and the learning and, and really just watch what is it that students do in these learning situations. And I was sort of, at first it was just a sense that I was having that something wasn't right. And eventually this sort of manifested to the realization that what I was seeing in these classrooms that I was visiting was that most of the lesson would go by without students doing any thinking. And and when I realized that, um, it, it sort of, at first it was just this, this subtle sense that they weren't thinking. And then as I dug in and actually did research on that, and the research revealed that, wow, in a typical lesson, only 20% of students are thinking, and even then only for about 20% of the time. Um, and this, and the realization that this was problematic because thinking is a necessary cre- precursor to learning. And, and, and that sort of awakening for me of what's really happening in classrooms, um, that, that was the inspiration for me to start searching for practices that could be used by any teacher to try to increase the amount of thinking that was happening in their classroom, to increase the number of students who were thinking and increase the amount of time that they were thinking for. Okay, so that's, that makes total sense. So what could be the inspiration maybe for a teacher to, to start this? Like, where, where should they start with this? Because there's a lot of thinking going on here. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay, so we can look at that question from two different directions, right? So one is, what is the inspiration? What, what, what can be the inspiration for a teacher to start on their journey to try to build a thinking classroom? And then the second question is, once they've started that journey, where do they start? So, um, you know, teachers take inspiration from all sorts of directions. I, I, over the years, I've worked with literally thousands and thousands of teachers. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that without exception, every single teacher I've ever met wants to do a good job. 
Um, and almost without exception as well, every teacher I've ever met has a really strong sense that something isn't quite right. That there is that there is something not working within our system. And, and I want to emphasize that, that it was the same thing for me. It wasn't that I was watching these 40 individual teachers not doing a good job. These were good teachers who were doing the best they could within a system that had saddled them with, with circumstances whereby students weren't thinking. And I think, like myself, every teacher I've ever met has, has stated in some way, in some form, that something needs to be improved at a systemic level. And I think when teachers get to the point in their, in their own professional journey where they start to realize that the system isn't going to change unless they themselves make some sort of a change inside the system. Um, sitting around and waiting for the system to change is a long wait. So, so when they get that to that point in their realization that they're going to have to sort of take the bull by the horns, um, then the place to start is, um, well, within the thinking classroom framework, there are 14 practices to choose from. Right. And when we were doing the research, we we sort of these 14 practices weren't chosen at random or I shouldn't say. These 14 variables, we we organize the research around sort of the 14 core things that every teacher does. So every teacher does notes, every teacher answers questions, every teacher uses tasks, every teacher does formative and summative assessment. Every teacher does group work to some level. Like we all do these things. Um, and what we were interested in was, are there practices around each of these core practices that can optimize the amount of thinking that happens? And we found them. We found 14 ways to build a thinking classroom. Um, we, we actually found many, many, many more, but when we when we reduce it down to sort of the four core practices, there are 14 of them. Um, but that didn't mean that that we could pick any one of them to start with, because after we had found sort of the 14 optimal ways to build a thinking classroom, we we asked ourselves, what is the optimal order to do it in? Because we don't just answer questions and we don't just give students tasks to work on. We don't just uh, do homework and we don't just do formative assessment. We do all of these things, but from a developmental perspective, we can't ourselves as teacher enact all 14 practices at the same time. And even if we could, students couldn't handle it. So our research really took a turn towards the end where we were really interested in what is the most reasonable way to implement this? We can't do all 14 at once. So what is the, the most optimal order to do these 14 practices in. And there was a whole bunch of research. I won't bore you with all the details on that. But what emerged was this sort of pseudo sequence, which very, very clearly said that the place to start, the place to start if you want to build a thinking classroom is to start with uh, thinking tasks. And I'll mention what that is in a minute. Random groups, visibly random groups, and having the students work on vertical non-permanent surfaces or vertical erasable surfaces. And those three things um, together had, or those three things had to be enacted together. And, and that 
produced a really powerful effect within the classroom. So let me just say a brief thing about each of them. We want students to think, we need to have, give them something to think about, and that comes in the form of a thinking task. When we originally start, we want these to be non-curricular tasks as a way to build the, the, the culture. And then we eventually transition into curricular tasks. Now, I know that uh, Regina Catholic District has put together an amazing resource of, of non-curricular tasks broken out by grade levels that map onto the curriculum in Saskatchewan. So, so that is a resource that's really worth diving into for, for just that one variable. Now we've given students something to think about. We need to give them someone to think with, and that comes in the form of a collaborative group. But we found that the optimal way to form these collaborative groups is to do it randomly, do it visibly so students can see it's random, and to do it frequently, at least once every hour. And then once we form those groups, we need to get them to do their work somewhere and having them work on vertical whiteboards or some sort of a proxy, something that is vertical and erasable, like a window or the side of a file cabinet or a white book or a vinyl picnic table cover stapled to a bulletin board, whatever, as long as it's vertical, as long as it's erasable. So those three are the places to start. Um, and, and if you do that, you will radically transform the way both teaching and learning looks within your classroom. And you will start to shift the primary engagement and the primary activity in the classroom into thinking, where you'll see all of a sudden 80% of your students thinking for 80% of their time. That's a pretty profound change in uh, just three of the practices, Peter. There's 14 in total. Um, and we're just wondering if you can speak a little bit to some of the more challenging to implement practices, the ones that, you know, teachers get hung up on or that, you know, the, the kind of, you know, start to hit the wall um, and what that looks like. And if you have any tips on how they can navigate that when they when they encounter that. OK, so. So challenging. Is a nuanced understanding terminology. So I'll tell you some of the surprising ones. So one of the, the, the most challenging that teachers find is random groups. It's easiest. It's actually probably the easiest practice to implement. All you need is a deck of cards or a random generator. It is dirt simple to do. But a lot of teachers find it really, really challenging and and not challenging to do, but challenging to come to the point where you can you can trust that this is going to be OK, because we all know, like when I say that we every single teacher pictures those three students who, oh, my goodness, should not be together. And you don't really have to worry about whether or not they're going to come together or not, because they are. And they're probably going to come together randomly on day one. It always works out that way. But. But why is it that we find this one so challenging? Um, Every teacher, I mentioned every teacher that I've ever met wants to do a good job. And part of doing a good job is manufacturing a good day. Like we want to plan and execute a good day for ourselves and for our learners. And part of that is anticipating problems and avoiding problems. And one of the absolute best way to avoid problems is to make sure that we control who students interact with. Because if we can control that, then we're going to immediately quell off-task behavior, misbehavior, too much socializing, and so on and so forth. And this sort of says, this practice sort of says, oh, no, we're going to do it randomly. And that is 
that that really jeopardizes our plans for manufacturing a good day for our learners. But it turns out it does work and it builds community and it unlocks empathy and it creates just such a powerful culture within the classroom. So that one is challenging because it's hard to find the courage to do it. And, and if a teacher says, and I don't ever want a teacher to feel that that is a trivial thing. Just because it's easy to do doesn't mean it doesn't take courage. And, and I do encourage teachers to do it. Um, in terms of execution, I think the most uh, skillful thing a teacher will do, I think, in classroom is to manage flow, which is how, how we manage hints and extensions, while at the same time anticipating, selecting, and sequencing uh, student work for the consolidation, which is chapter 10. I think those two practices together, which really makes up the bulk of what your job, what your actions are within a thinking classroom is, is challenging in the sense that it's what, it, it just requires so much teacherly craft, right? It really does. And, and my research has never promised that these things are easy to do. It's only ever promised that these things are effective and, and do get students to think, but that one requires a lot of skill. And, and again, a teacher who is at that point in their journey and they're struggling with it and it's, they're finding it difficult, I think that's a really that's a really strong indicator that you have come a long way in your journey, and and that you're supposed to be struggling with this. It's okay. Every teacher I've ever worked with has struggled with this, and every teacher who I've ever worked with intensely who has overcome this. And when they have overcome it, from the other side, they say things like, "Oh, this is not hard." <laughs> um, Right, it's I, I don't. It doesn't take so long to plan, and I just have to be really present while I'm teaching. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not hard, right? So those ones are challenging for a different reason. And then, I think shifting gears, chapter fourteen into the into the outcomes based assessment is hard because it's such a philosophical turn. And even if we don't believe as teachers that we have a philosophy of education, that we we have a our philosophy of assessment, we have a practice of assessment. Our practice of assessment is guided by tradition and history and, and what is required within the district or within the province. But we do have philosophies around assessment. There are things we believe and we believe them deeply. And in order to make the transition into outcomes-based assessment, it really requires us to to interrogate our own beliefs and our own practices around assessment. And, and that's a hard turn. That's, that is a, 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 a tough corner to turn. That, that makes a ton of sense. Like I was actually uh, working in team teaching with another teacher today and we were doing uh, the thinking classroom. And uh, you know, I found myself when I was trying to consolidate the knowledge and go around like, yeah, I had to make sure that I knew what I was saying too. And, you know, and there's a couple of times I circled things and we went back and I'm like, why did I circle that again? So <laughs> it definitely takes a, a little bit too. And uh, another point that you made too, we we're doing a book study uh, right now and we were having a good conversation and we were talking about the, the random groups. And one teacher said that she puts two uh, students, uh, they choose this class dojo to randomize. 
but she makes sure that the class dojo won't have those two students uh, together. And, you know, it's kind of interesting what you said, like, should she not do that? But, you know, she thinks, you know what I mean? It, it's really, uh, so I, it does seem simple, but I definitely just heard that the other day, you know, where, where it's not so simple uh, on that. And I know myself, you know, being a high school teacher, yeah, there's a lot of pressure uh, for the, the mark, you know, so doing that outcome thing, and I agree with you, it's definitely, and you have to be the change, but I do like the groundswell that we have in our division, and I think, especially from a high school perspective, and I said this, I, I thank God for all of our elementary teachers, because they're doing, there's a really good support there, that the kids are going to come up to high school and kind of like expect it a little bit, and then the way we're uh, doing things, that we're traditionally doing things, uh, the kids are hopefully will call us out and saying, well, you're, you're not making me think. I want to think. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that. So I know a lot of teachers, like I helped this teacher today, and it was kind of close to Christmas, uh, you know, and she was asking me, well, I'd like to try this, but I'm hoping it just doesn't end with her and I working these uh, next couple of days together. How do you make sure that it's not a one-off, or, or, or can you? Uh, so this is, yeah, so this is sort of a comment towards... Like that's almost like a, a coaching consulting question rather than a, a, a teacher question, but it's so my work my work doesn't tell teachers what they should do, right? It tells a teacher who wants to make change how to make that change. Um, so how do we prevent it from being a one-off? Um, I think the teacher has to want to keep it going for sure. But one of the things that Thinking Classrooms does that so many other things in professional development have failed to do in the past is that it offers a place to start, right? It offers a really clear entry point where you just, just here, do this, use this task, make these moves and see what happens. So if a teacher goes into a classroom and does tax collector in random groups on vertical surfaces, they will see something that they have not seen before. They will see their students think, they will realize what that thinking looks like, they'll, they'll, they'll want more of that. So it's, it's how do I make sure it's not a one-off? I don't make sure it's not a one-off. The teacher makes sure it's not a one-off. But I think it's sort of a proof of concept. It's here's some things to try, try them, fall in love with them, see the change that you're making with your own hands, uh, feel that power of thinking in the room and then stay on that journey so that you can get more of that and more frequent and more students doing it and, and for longer periods of time. Right. Yeah, and I think I think if you see kids thinking and getting into the math at a deeper level, why wouldn't that be something you want to do, if not every day, very, very regularly, right? So um, that's one of the selling points I always think about. Um, one of the things, Peter, that uh, I've encountered supporting teachers across our division, trying to get them, you know, to be open minded towards the thinking classroom. Uh, you know, I give them a quick little spiel as best as I can in two minutes on what the thinking classroom is in a side conversation during recess, you know, while they're thinking about all these other things. And a lot of the teachers I talk to are like, well, you know what, I've been doing that stuff. I do that stuff. I've been doing it for years. We've been using whiteboards. We've been doing all these different things. Uh, how, how, do, how would you respond to that kind of um, I don't want to say pushback, but hesitancy maybe that 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 some teachers have towards implementing this because they've seen it before or whatever that might be. Right. 
So, of course, thinking classrooms is something that has existed long before the book, right? My research took 15 years to do, and I've been presenting on it since 2014 and writing on it since then. So the ideas are out there. So it's very true that there are people who have been doing this for a, for a number of years. Um, whenever someone says, I've been doing it for years, I always ask them what it is to, to clarify that. And often what turns out to be the case is that what they've been doing is vertical non-permanent surfaces, yeah. uh, which of course is is sort of the, the, the enticing, really visible hallmark of thinking classrooms. But, you know, that's chapter three of the book. It's, it's, it's 20 out of 300 pages, right? So there is, there's 13 other practices and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, um, I think when a teacher says they're doing it, they are doing it, but they're doing a part of it, right? And what Thinking Classrooms offers is so much more that, that, that we can use. Yeah, it's, they've picked a pretty good practice if that's the one they're doing, and it, it leverages a fair bit of change. Um, but it's, even when, even, when, even when I work with teachers who have been doing this for a long time, They'll come to one of my workshops, for example, or I'll come into their classroom and co-teach with them. And, and they're always saying, oh yeah, I forgot about that piece. Or there's that little one, the little one that makes a difference and, and, and so on and so forth. So for example, taking someone who's been doing this for a very long time and then I'm, I'm in the classroom and they realize that, huh, before you did the consolidation, you called everyone to the middle of the room, you had a brief conversation, and then you did the consolidation. Why was that? Well, that was just so that we can detach ownership of the board, so that when we look at the work of the students, it's, we're, it's, they're less emotionally engaged or feel emotionally challenged by it. And it's like, oh, that's what's been missing. And, and one of the things that kept coming out of this research is everything matters. And often it's the really little things that make huge differences in how students experience a thinking classroom. So I can promise you there is more under the sun <laughs> to learn in a thinking classroom. So if you're doing it, great. I suggest re-engaging with it a little bit because, you know, we when we learn things, just like students, when we learn things about teaching is we learn them in waves. And, and when we first encounter something, we, we're just skipping across the tops of the waves and picking up on, on the big ideas. But it's going back through those waves and getting into some of those troughs and the nitty gritties that, that we start to real, really mine the depth of what's possible. That's, that's really good. I like that. that. One of the things I always come back to is, you know, trying to be purposeful about the practices, right, and reflective as you're using them. So I think that really speaks well to it. Yeah, and I do want to say that many, there's, Many of these practices are not unique to me, right? There are other people have been playing with ideas for a very long time, like how not to answer a question and, and, and so on and so forth. And having students work on a whiteboard is, is not brand new to me. And outcomes-based assessment has existed for, for, like everything that's been written about assessment for the last 25 years has been about outcomes-based assessment. So it's, it's not that I'm taking things that are are, are I'm creating things that are new necessarily, but I've, the work has sort of proven which of the things that are out there are most effective for getting students to think. Makes a lot of sense. Actually, I was working, like I said, with a teacher today, and when he said that consulting, I didn't do that. What a great idea. Why didn't I remember that? So 
So that's a perfect timing, and uh, I'll make sure to do that uh, tomorrow because, yeah, to, to, to uh, detach them like that and to get them to realize that, hey, it's just work that we can look at, and it's not. And so thank you. <laughs> that's good good timing for me. Um, speaking of good timing for me, like again, I kind of mentioned that, that I'm a high school teacher and that too, and then good, perfect uh, kind of a follow-up because you were mentioning outcomes. And I really, like I say, I honor what uh, elementary teachers do. They do a better job with you know, understanding what their outcomes in and, and can do different ways to, to find it. So, you know, they kind of a thinking classroom could be real more natural in a, an elementary situation. It should just be as natural in a high school situation. So how do we convince or figure out, or is it just kind of like what you said, people have to want to do it? I think there's some traditionalists that might say, well, we got to be on this on day five, we got to be on this page and day 10, we got to be on this page and get this done. What, what do you say to like maybe like a high school teacher that says, you know, there's not enough time to, to cover all my uh, curriculum uh, and do this thing in classroom? So, well, the first thing I'll say is this. So it's interesting that a high school teacher may say that because, and I do hear that, high school teachers will say things like, oh yeah, that's fine for elementary, but, but it's not going to work in high school. And ironically, elementary teachers will sometimes say, oh, I, I see that working really well in high school, but this is not something we can do in elementary. Um, it, it really does cut both ways and it really has to do with what you envision the the purpose of your job what is what is the objective of your job as a teacher if you're a grade six teacher a grade eight teacher a grade 12 teacher and and what is the objective of thinking classrooms vis-a-vis -vis that the objective of the curriculum or your objective as a teacher um what i say to teachers specifically when they say i don't have time for this is you don't have time not to do this. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, um, you know, the retention for students who have learned something in a traditional way is not very long, right? Like I, I, I read a paper one time where they said that sort of the half-life of, of content learned traditionally is about six weeks, which means that things that they've learned and I think some people are going, oh yeah, it's not even that hard, right? Like I, I, I test my students on a topic and then three weeks later, they, they can't remember it at all. Um, summer break is nine weeks long, yeah. right? And so there's, a, there's not really a big difference between things that students haven't learned and things that they have forgotten. And, and so the question is, are we really doing them a service by saying we, we, we covered it all? But the bigger thing about it is that let's take grade eight algebra, solving one and two step equations. There's nothing difficult there. There's nothing difficult about that topic. Why does it take us three weeks to teach it? And then why do we have to revisit it in grade nine and grade 10 and grade 11 again? And why is it that when a student comes down and after they've done all the work to solve it and that they have an answer that says, three equals negative x, they don't know what to do next, right? Like, is that really learning? Have they really learned it in grade eight if we, if, if we have to revisit it that many times and we still have to slay those same dragons over and over and over again? Um, but what happens if we teach it when they are thinking? So teaching one and two step equations solving one and two step equations in a thinking classroom takes between one and two lessons and they remember it. So 
one of the things that a thinking classroom does at its very, very basic level is it builds a culture of thinking, which takes time. But then once you have that culture of thinking, you save time because you start tearing through content in, in very fast ways where students are achieving uh, learning in ways that that are deeper and faster. And we're we're just saving time. Teachers who are implementing thinking classrooms do not feel rushed. They, if you're doing it for the first time, the first two weeks is a little bit stress inducing because we're spending all that time doing non curricular tasks and we feel like we're getting behind. But all of a sudden by Christmas, we're, we're caught up and by spring break, we're ahead and we're finishing the school year three weeks early and, and we have time to do some enrichment or some deeper learning on, on things. So you don't have time not to do thinking classrooms because your curriculum is packed. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a uh, good answer. <laughs> a really good take. I like that you can't that you were thinking you can't afford to not do it. Um, and especially, you know, we have so many teachers that talk about there's not enough time to get through the curriculum as it is. This might be a way to, you know, address that concern that we're seeing across the board. So that's really good. Um, that, that has me thinking, Peter, about, you know, saving time and, and students who learn through a thinking classroom versus the traditional and the half-life, if you will, of their their retention, their knowledge. What does a student who has been in a thinking classroom for multiple years look like? Are they, um, is it even faster? Is this kind of exponential growth as we go throughout the grades? What, what does it look like over, over the stretch of a few years for the students? So the one thing I've never been able to do is find a demographic where we're able to track a, a cohort of students through a thinking classroom year of over year over year over year now i know they exist in some of the smaller schools and so on where where you could have a group of grade fives for example that are going to be exactly the same group as your group of grade sixes and and so on and so forth but but i've never had an opportunity to work in one of those settings where i could really track that i have however had lots of opportunities to work in settings where for example the grade five six teacher so it's a blended class is going to is is uh, the same teacher two years in a row. So in the first year she has her five sixes, and in her second year her fives are now her sixes, and she's got new fives. Um, or vice versa, being in a classroom at a high school level where I'm watching a grade ten teacher do thinking classrooms, and some of the students in the class uh, were grade nine students of either that same teacher or another teacher who was doing thinking classrooms. So you get this sort of blend of students all of a sudden in a year that some have experience and some don't. Um, in all of those cases, one of the biggest things we've learned is that we need to we need to sort of detune those students who have had prior experiences because they are moving so fast that the other students can't get caught up. That if on day one, of your grade nine year or grade 10 year, you come in and you do tax collector and students, nobody has ever seen it before, but 12 of your students have been in a thinking classroom before, they are off and running and the others are still trying to figure out why is that I don't have my own marker. Um, so having, working with these students who have had prior experiences and getting them to slow down and remind them what it was like for them when they started out so that they can have, uh, they can provide a better on-ramp support 
and onboarding support for, for the students who are new to it is really, really vital because they are moving at 100 kilometers an hour and the other students are still standing still. So it's it's that's one of the things we've seen. And what that indicates to us is that this thing has a compounding effect. I think there's a terminal velocity to, to thinking, right? And I think every teacher hits that terminal velocity. If they're, if they're truly building a thinking classroom by, by January, they've hit terminal velocity, meaning that th these students are moving as fast as they're ever gonna move. More time in a thinking classroom isn't going to make them move faster, but it, it might make it so that it, well, it does make it so that they extract more learning out of their experiences and they start to take more and more responsibility for their learning. So that's one of the things that can continue to compound. But it's I look forward to the time where we can actually have enough saturation that we can actually track an entire class of students for a second year that way. That makes a lot of sense. I think you've kind of answered this uh, next question a, a little bit, but but I know the book does a really nice job of piecing it together in terms of, you know, do the practices, all 14 of them, they work, can you, do they work in isolation or can you just pick a few that you like and kind of, uh, I'll take practice uh, four, five, and seven to go, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't suggest five on its own. Uh, you're just gonna irritate your students, which is how not to answer questions. But, um, so, you know, interestingly, a lot of the research were done with the practices in isolation. So, and we saw improvements. The, the, the real effect happens though when they start to work in concert with each other. And it's, it's, it's rare. There are some practices that would all be in, in, in action at the same time, but there's others that are not. So for example, you can't have students working in flow at the same time as you're having them write notes. Like those are chronologically separate activities, right? So you can you can pick and choose sort of across a chronological spectrum. Likewise, you're not having you're not always doing summative assessment. So summative assessment is something that exists uh, as a connected a connection to the other practices, but it exists chronologically separated. Whereas for example, random groups and vertical surfaces and a thinking task and managing flow and how we answer questions and, and how the furniture is arranged and all of those things are happening at the same time. Um, which practices can exist in isolation? The assessment practices can exist in isolation. Um, for example, I've done a lot of work with teachers who are not using thinking classrooms but have started to use the assessment practices, the, the, the self-assessment, or a formative assessment and then a summative assessment, um, because those turn to turn out to map into any practice. Uh, and likewise, the sort of using assessment as a way to shape student behavior also works in any practice. So the assessment ones can really work well in isolation. Um, the others, I would say, are bundled, right? Like, of course, you can do vertical surfaces, but and that gives you some effect, but it gives you more effect if you bundle it with other things. Makes sense. I, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and I think, uh, you know, for our elementary teachers, that outcomes-based reporting is something we've been working on for as long as I've been with our school division, which is, uh, you know, seven or eight years now. So uh, it's interesting to see how that 
this could support that and tie into it as well. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about in our school division is, you know, supporting all the kids that are in our classrooms, right? We don't have that situation with, with kids with, uh, you know, additional needs or, you know, don't fit the norm or sent to another room anymore. We have them integrated into our classrooms that are just a, a normal student in our classrooms. But how does a thinking classroom work for those students, the students who might need more supports traditionally or um, maybe are working at a different grade level but are still in the same classroom? What, how does a thinking classroom help those students or, or does it not work for those students? Um, so again, this is one of those pronoun things. Um, what, do we know, what do we mean by those students, right? So every, every educational system that you can create is going to advantage and disadvantage different students. And when you shift the between educational systems, it shifts which students are advantaged and disadvantaged, right? So we have ample evidence that there are students who have IEPs who absolutely thrive in thinking classrooms. Um, and likewise, we have students who are, are thriving in traditional settings who struggle initially in a thinking classroom. They have a lot to lose in when all of a sudden the game shifts from mimicking to thinking. Um, so will there be students who struggle and need additional support? Yes. Will they be the students that you anticipate being the students who need who struggle and need support? No, there there. These are these are two different sets. There is overlap between them. There's going to be a student who struggles in a traditional setting who's also going to need support in a thinking classroom, but there's going to be other students who who show a need for support and other students who all of a sudden don't need support. So yeah i don't think we can ever construct an educational setting that doesn't that 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 works out of the box for every single student we're all all students are different so what thinking classrooms offers is just so many more access points for students of different learners uh, different types of learners and it there's just so much more opportunity to create equity through these different access points so random groups destigmatizes collaboration, which gives so much more access to collaboration for students who are, are shy and also students who would normally be shunned by, by, by a group, um, all of a sudden are welcomed into groups because it's just become the norm. Uh, vertical surfaces, uh, takes away anonymity, so everybody has greater engagement, which isn't true when they're sitting. Um, just the way we structure tasks with a low floor entry gives more access to students. So yeah, we, we're reducing the number of students who need support and the type of support that is needed, but I will never say that we're going to eliminate it all. Uh, but the types of support students are going to need is going to be different. So these sorts of IEPs that are written uh, around things like they need a scribe and they need someone to like those sorts of IEPs, which are constructed on an assumption that a classroom looks in a very traditional way are are no. I don't want to say they're not relevant, but they're they they need to be rethought. Right. So. So, yeah, it's we're always going to have students who need our support. Yeah, that's you know this is amazing. Like I've been to, I've read the book, been to a workshop, listened to podcasts. I've been fortunate enough to have dinner with you and listen to your share stories. But 
every time I hear, I learn so much more. This is so so cool, and there's there's so much to learn and unpack and get. Like, thank you. Like, I'm really, uh, yeah, really fortunate to be able to have this conversation, and I'm hoping a lot of other people have a chance to to lots to unpack. I guess one question, uh, kind of dealing with supports, but also kind of like in our school division, we have a connected educator program, so we use technology uh, quite a bit. So. How do you, uh, have you seen people use technology in a thinking classroom or how could that fit in or look or, or that, you know, how, because I, th I think technology myself is really powerful. Like I use Minecraft, for example, in my classroom, my kids are building like slope and they're building uh, surface area and volume and, and those type of things. Uh, does that have a place in the thinking classroom? You know, when I, maybe one day we'll do a second edition of this book, but one of my great regrets is that I did not spend enough time being explicit about how I view the role of technology and manipulatives in a thinking classroom. Um, my view on both of those is that they should be ubiquitous, that they should be ever present and always at the fingertips and, and an integrated part of the learning environment. Um, like they should be as present as air is in, in a classroom. And that's not just a thinking classroom, but any classroom. Um, so the reason I don't talk about it explicitly in the classroom is the same reason I don't talk about blinds on the windows and and what type of flooring material there is or what color the door is like like these are things that I just assume are going to be present. Um, yeah, technology definitely has a place. Uh, but but the work my work hasn't explicitly dealt with technology per se beyond the idea of of technology as a ubiquitous resource that when students are working at the whiteboards and they need a calculator, they grab a calculator. If they need to produce a graph, they'll fire up Desmos or or whatever it is that they're using. And sometimes that technology is is needs to be more explicitly introduced, things like Minecraft, and other times it just needs to be like don't ask a fish about water type thing. Um, but one of the things that's really emerged for me in this work, which I think is, is, is sort of the direction that more recent research into the role of technology in education has shifted as well, is that it's not technology for the sake of technology, right? Like the goals, the goal is for technology to support uh, something like thinking or learning or, or so on and so forth, that, that, that technology acts in a servant role rather than a master role. Right. And and in that capacity, I'm all for it. Right? Uh, there are some things that we've learned that you have to be more uh, more careful with, because the minute you bring out technology, it can drive students into individual spaces. Um, so it's not that every student has a calculator. It's one student at the board at, in a group has a calculator um, and that there is agreement about how that, that we agree what gets put into the calculator. So that first we're discussing what goes into the calculator. First we discuss what goes into the graph. First we discuss what, how, what, what the technology is being used for. So that there is that sort of collective input, then the black box output, and then that collective interrogation of what the output is. Um, and that's, that's really important. Otherwise it just becomes a bunch of students standing around with their heads at 90 degrees looking down at their device. Well, thank you. That's yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, every time I hear you speak, Peter, and that's been a number of times this year, I, I walk away with something new. So I really appreciate the time 
um, today. And, and Dean, thanks for setting this up and, and connecting us with Peter even further. No, thanks for jumping aboard. A great conversation. Uh, like, there's something for everybody in this conversation. And uh, yeah, hopefully, maybe we can follow up down the road. And we're definitely looking forward to you coming back uh, to our, the Queen City here and then hanging out with us and uh, helping us get better. Uh, it's definitely our students see the impact of this. So thank you. Yes. While I enjoy watching what's happening in, uh, in the district through Twitter and so on, and I do look forward to coming back in February. Yeah, as I said it uh, once before, you know, you're going to see Regina at its best in February. So uh, bring your parka and uh, <laughs> maybe a toboggan. I don't know. It'll be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. I'm, uh, awesome. I'm well equipped for the cold when need be. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to RCSD Thinking Classroom PD with your hosts, Dean and Kyle. Stay tuned for more podcasts on the Thinking Classroom in RCSD. Until next time, keep those thinking caps on. Mm -hmm.